does this button do? Mm, what's happening, Mortimer? Call me M. Fine. M. What are you working on? My music. I'm sublimating my frustration into lyrics. I thought you liked being a public servant. I did. The first week. After that... And the probationary period is like a year. Worth it, though, for the pay and the benefits. Paltry compensation for giving up my dreams. I should be touring the world with my music. Or saving damsels and dudes in distress. Instead, I'm fenced inside a little pen all day, ingesting gibberish and spewing out gobbledygook. Yeah. Poor you. Uh, play me what you got so far. One, two, three, four. Check it. Chrome. This browser is as old as my niece. What do you mean that you don't like my briefing note? It's a paragraph. Ain't that brief enough for you? What do you mean that my analysis is flawed? Sure, it's blather, but it's derived from your twaddle. What do you mean I'm behind in my work? It's the system that's behind in my pay. If there's a new job... I'll be the first in line But it better work this time I actually learned guitar by watching YouTube Free lessons for the cost of my monthly internet access plan <laughs> What do you mean that my dog's not a dependent? He's been unemployed for like... years What do you mean that I'm ignoring the dress code? It's not like I'm barefoot at the office and I don't wash my feet with vinegar, fart, swear, and melt stinky cheese on my dill-flavored popcorn. What do you mean that my performance is poor? That's true. Why'd you give me a free? If there's a new job... Stop. I'll be the Stop. first in line. Stop. Don't be a jerk Stop. this time. Stop. Stop. <laughs> Stop. So much better than my real job. Stop! I can get paid for this. Stop! What? <sighs> you didn't even write that. The lyrics are mine. My advice? Cancel the pity party. Work harder at your real job. <sighs> Trust me. I've got rock chops. And I'm a superhero outside of normal work hours. You've got to change. You are everything that the public hates and fears about lazy, overpaid public servants. Hero me is the real me. Not listening. The guy that goes to work, that's just my cover. Not listening. I have a secret room. Walking away now. I made my own exosuit. Still not listening. And a cape, although I haven't worn it since I watched The Incredibles. Almost there. I'll show him. Gone now. I'll show all of them. Vindication shall be mine. Heard that. This is George Wenzel. You're listening to Toddcast. It really whips the llama's ass. All I know is that you need it. All I know is you just need it. All I know is we just need it. All I know is you just need it. (laughs) 
Hello and welcome, GC. I'm Todd Lyons, and this is Toddcast Season 3, Episode 7, a show for and about public servants. The New York Times published a piece on the relatively muted public fervor leading up to Canada 150. Written by Canadian Stephen Marsh, and given the unabashedly clickbait title, Canada Doesn't Know How to Party, the piece nonetheless made some valid observations about what makes us, us. We are a different kind of citizen. We love Canada deeply and sincerely, but not blindly or gushingly. Were I a suitor for my country's affection, I would send flowers with a handwritten note, followed by a phone call with a polite invitation to an evening out together, a quiet dinner and a stroll and conversation. I would not rent an expensive custom red-and-white sequin tuxedo and hire a string quartet on my credit card and show up completely unannounced in the front street of my lady love, declaring my undying affection to her while serenading loudly and out of tune, either completely unaware or callously unconcerned by the disruption to neighbors and passers-by. As Canadians, we love quietly and temperately, rarely if ever in a state of cultural inebriation, blind drunk on patriotism. We love truly and firmly, but not without conditions. Like any supportive partner, we want the best for Canada, but we hold it to high standards for its conduct. We don't minimize or ignore its past mistakes or indignantly defend and justify its poor decisions. It's not enough that it pledged to do better in the future. It must make amends for its past. There is no transformation, no progression towards self-actualization, no great future ahead for the one who is surrounded by toadies. The strongest love there is comes from those that tell us the real truth about ourselves, whose desire for us to reach our full capability is so strong that they will risk hurting our feelings or making us angry in order to tell us what we need to hear those who would rather part ways from us completely than allow us to persist in delusion. Canada. We are quiet, but not passive. We love completely, but not blindly. We recognize a milestone has been reached, but also that there's a long way left to go. On this edition of Toddcast, I invite public servants to talk about anything they want to share about their journey to their role in public service, the work that they do, their hopes for the future. Come with me. Our family history, while not unique, speaks to the Armenian diaspora, the intergenerational trauma brought upon by cycles of forced migration, genocide, exile, war, and displacement. Memories of migration, forced expulsion, exile, banishment, and war have played an integral part in how I've constructed my identity. 
they've left deep physical and psychological wounds. My name is Sarin, and my story is one of resilience and hope. I am a non-white, non-Indigenous woman born to intergenerational survivors of the Armenian Genocide. Like my grandparents, I was forced to find refuge in foreign lands such as Germany, Syria, Cyprus, and Canada. As a young girl, I grew up heavily immersed and centered in my Armenian heritage, while my Lebanese upbringing brought a flavor of life and strength to me. As a near casualty of war in Beirut, Lebanon, I acquired the nickname Enfant de Bomb because I was born in a war zone and grew up in a bomb shelter. I later discovered that neighbors would take turns assisting my mother in changing my diapers and watching over me. In Lebanon, we lived under heavy bombing, frequently deprived of water and electricity. Even under these conditions, the Canadian government set up a temporary makeshift embassy in Nicosia and processed our immigration papers. We didn't come to Canada as refugees, but our migration was facilitated by the civil war. Canada wasn't always welcoming of Armenians, but Pier 21 reminds me how Canada eventually welcomed the Georgetown boys, orphans of the Armenian genocide between 1923 and 1930. Special measures were put in place since then, and some 68 years later, Canada welcomed my family and me. Every single day, I am mindful of my journey and the countries that sheltered us as I give back to the next incoming generation to Canada, the Syrians, whose country sheltered generations of my family. The work that I do as a public servant is shaped by these experiences and reflections. Since 2008, my studies in migration studies and diaspora politics and my passionate and unrelenting work with immigrants, refugees, and citizens has brought me full circle. During National Public Service Week, I had the pleasure of attending the Canadian Immigration Historical Society's book launch, where I had the privilege of hearing their President and Director General, Mike Malloy, and fellow visa officers speak about their experiences in the field and contributions to Canada's extraordinary and indelible resettlement efforts for Syrians. This organization is responsible for providing services and implementing special measures following international crises, epidemics, and war. I credit their actions in helping me escape the Middle East and for taking a lead role in the resettlement of thousands of vulnerable Syrian refugees. My department has helped countless refugees, families, and communities resume their life away from bombardments, bomb shelters, and constant fear. As a public servant, I have worked on the citizenship file extensively, making decisions as a minister's delegate and in issues management. I am so proud to work for the very department that upholds Canada's long-held responsibility to protect motto. In 2014, former Governor General Adrian Clarkson argued that a sense of belonging is a necessary mediation between an individual and a society. She placed particular emphasis on the Canadian model, which promotes immigration, parliamentary democracy, and the rule of law, and the First Nations Circle, which embodies notions of expansion and equality. In this context, I think and write a lot about Canada 150. For me, Canada 150 is Resistance 150. You cannot have one without the other. There is no Canada without reconciliation and inclusion. Lately, I have begun to drag strength from oral storytelling and sharing stories, 
stepping closer to reconciliation for Indigenous peoples. Since the commemoration of World Refugee Day, I have been reflecting particularly about what it means to me as a quasi-refugee, a human, a Canadian, a public servant, and a guest on unceded Algonquin lands. What does World Refugee Day mean to me? As the granddaughter of Armenian genocide survivors in Syria, it means everything. So when I bear witness to reconciliation demands and efforts, the sharing of lived experiences, of difficult knowledge, I do it from my own unhealed, unreconciled, unresolved space. My name is Christian Bertelson, and I'm the manager of Crown Consultation Coordination with the Northern Projects Management Office of the Canadian Northern Economic Development Agency, and I have the good fortune of working in Yellowknife in the Northwest Territories. And I can really identify with the concept of being an accidental public servant because upon originally completing my graduate studies in Montreal, I uh, had planned to undertake my PhD, but my partner um, proposed at the time that we move up to Yellowknife and start our careers there. And in coming to the North, what I found is uh, an incredible environment that I quickly became enamored with, um, incredible people both from the North and attracted to the North, and work that was just as satiating as becoming an academic. And I have to admit that the transition to government initially was a bit challenging because in government, it's, it's not what you can think, it's what you can implement and achieve. And in the North, I realized that the complexities were great, but so too were the rewards. In the North, obviously, the the possibility of change is contingent on one's ability to build trustful relationships and forge consensus. And so I feel so very fortunate to work in the North, where I honestly believe the future of Canada lies. And I also believe that besides climate change, I think Canada's greatest priority is advancing the national project of reconciliation with Indigenous peoples. And my work in the North affords me the great opportunity to play a humble role in doing just that. In the public service, I found an environment that's ripe for innovation, but increasingly attracting the talented people needed to accomplish it. And my advice to anyone is connect with awesome and amplify it. Find the innovators, connect with them, learn from them, collaborate with them, and together build a better Canada for tomorrow. It's funny, in our technological future from the regions, I've found that by going so very far away from everyone, I've really truly managed to get even closer with them all. I don't know how else to introduce myself, so I'll start by saying that I am a first-generation Canadian of Asian descent. I am also an employee of the Government of Canada, and I live in British Columbia. As the child of immigrants who came to this country with nothing except the clothes on their backs, I have a greater appreciation for the freedoms and opportunities this country affords in comparison to our land of origin. Although my parents were educated, They had difficulty finding work in their fields after their arrival in Canada. To make ends meet, my parents worked multiple low-wage jobs. It was all that they could find, but to their credit, they never complained because it was still better than what they left behind. Although my parents struggled financially, 
They imparted solid Eastern family values to me and my siblings. They also stressed the importance of education because they wanted us to have a better life than the one they were able to provide. In the hopes of a brighter future, we all focused our attention on educational achievements and higher learning, expecting it to translate into financially successful careers. Upon completion of my master's degree, I found work with the public service as a contract employee. After three long years of waiting and wandering, I felt fortunate to finally be rolled in on an indeterminate full-time basis. To me, this meant that I could finally look forward to a stable and upwardly mobile career with benefits and a pension. Working for the Government of Canada looked to be a solid prospect because so many of my friends were unemployed or underemployed. Unfortunately, in my 16 years of employment, I have progressed far less than I had anticipated. I have watched my friends climb and surpass me on the private sector corporate ladder. Remaining stagnant has been difficult for me both emotionally and financially. I continue to wonder if I made the right decision career-wise by staying, even though I am mostly satisfied with my job. Let me touch upon a few points, mainly the federal government staffing processes, the uneven distribution of jobs throughout Canada, and the disproportionate nature of salaries. I don't believe that I am alone in my disillusionment and frustration with the staffing processes. Not only are they entirely too slow, but virtually all supervisory positions require that you speak both French and English. I don't understand why this is necessary. There has been a huge demographic shift in Canada's population since the 1970s, and public service staffing should accordingly be representative of who makes up our society now. When I walk in the streets of Vancouver and Toronto, I don't primarily hear English and French. Instead, I hear Punjabi, Hindi, Cantonese, Mandarin, and Japanese. This is supported by the latest census, which reports that only 23% of Canadians listed French as their primary language. I've also heard that at least 65% of the positions in Ottawa are designated bilingual. I'm inclined to believe that those numbers are even higher for senior management positions. While I understand that employees are entitled to communicate with their manager in the language of their choice, the private sector manages to harness talent and still achieve results. So why is the Government of Canada not rethinking their strategy? The ability to communicate in more than one language is unquestionably an asset. However, when the importance of language is emphasized over qualifications, experience and skills, language ceases to be an asset and unfortunately becomes a barrier for many. Consequently, we risk losing bright and talented candidates who are unilingual to the private sector. If we are to continue to define bilingualism in terms of only French and English, then we need to prepare all Canadians to function in those two languages so as to not limit their participation in the federal civil service. This could be accomplished by weaving both languages into the education system uniformly for each child in each province. This would equalize opportunities for all Canadians. I know that my parents wouldn't have deliberately disadvantaged me had they known the consequences of sending me to an English-only school. I suspect others concur. I see the over-concentration of jobs in Ottawa and Gatineau as a real problem. 
given that it is the government of Canada, why aren't the jobs more evenly distributed throughout Canada? Not everyone lives in Ottawa, nor should they be expected to. Relocation shouldn't be an expectation in career advancement. Those of us outside of the Ottawa nucleus have found ourselves patiently waiting for the few opportunities that materialize when someone retires or leaves. When more people are forced to compete for fewer jobs, competition becomes fierce and hard feelings linger long after the vacancy has been filled. People lose hope or leave in frustration, and pretending that this isn't happening won't make the problem go away. Providing equal access to good-paying government jobs would more evenly distribute the wealth to all Canadians, not just those living in the nation's capital. More even distribution of wealth brings me to my next point, the disparity in the cost of living between major Canadian cities. The cost of living in cities like Vancouver is astronomical. Streamlining government salaries countrywide doesn't make practical sense even with the modest cost of living adjustment. For instance, a salary of 65000 in Vancouver doesn't carry the same weight as in PEI when you consider that a single-family home costs $1 million in Vancouver. If the cost of living cannot be equalized and made affordable for all Canadians irrespective of where they live, then salaries in these markets should be adjusted accordingly so as to attract and retain the best employees. Like it or not, in housing markets like mine, salaries have a profound effect on employee retention and morale. I am halfway to my eligible retirement date, but am worried about whether I will be able to afford to retire if I remain here. This is not the definition of stability and security government jobs once represented. It stands to reason that no one would knowingly put themselves through years of post-secondary education and incur student loans especially if they knew that something as basic as home ownership would remain unattainable. My partner and I have virtually no savings, let alone a home of our own. We don't have new cars or lead extravagant lives. We've put off having children hoping that things would get better, but they haven't. Our idea of a vacation is a road trip to Calgary to see my sister's family because most of our earnings are spent on survival. I never imagined that I would be one paycheck away from homelessness. I am hoping this won't always be the case. I am proud to be a Canadian, and I am proud to be a public servant. By bringing attention to these issues, I am hoping to spark change. Anonymity is empowering me to be bold and to say the things many of us think about, but are too afraid of the repercussions to actually say. Addressing these issues as part of the modernization efforts in the public service will not only attract and retain talent, but will allow everyone to derive maximal enjoyment from their career in the public service. Uh, I'm Bob, obviously work for Government of Canada, and I'm based in PEI. So I've lived in Canada 10 years or so. I became a citizen in 2015 and um, joined the public service four, four or five days after becoming a public servant. Uh, sorry, after becoming a citizen. So I'm, I'm, I'm still new to this game. And it's actually been a very pleasant and, and welcoming experience, which has been, I, w I wouldn't say a shock to the system, but it all went very smoothly. And um, I feel that 
I'm empowered in what I do and everybody's been great and it's very few downsides. So that's good. <laughs> I've only been a public servant for two years and, and I've really enjoyed that transition. And it's probably the most fun I've had in my career to date. There's clearly so many different departments and so many varied experiences. But uh, from, from where I came in, it was um, pleasant, you know, yeah, even with all the, you know, the hiccups I hear about Phoenix and things. I've, I've not been impacted by them, touch wood. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it's been a very pleasant change. And, and if for all the bad things that you hear in the press, I guess, um, there's so many other little nuanced things that in the private industry, you know, things weren't handled or done particularly well. Even simple things like somebody coming around and saying, hey, we really should check out your chair and your desk and your computer. Make sure you're actually going to do things right and not injure yourself. Ergonomics that, is important. Yeah. yeah. And it, it's just a lot of the other, those type of things do get kind of forgotten about uh, in, in the private industry, in my experience. What excites you about the work yeah. that you're doing right now? Uh, well, in the position I'm in, uh, it, it's um, helping firms. So that's, that's exciting, getting to help firms do interesting things. Uh, so I'm kind of front-facing staff on the road, yeah, and I can kind of live vicariously through the work that I'm hopefully enabling others to do. Um, so that's really nice and fun. I guess what's exciting me, uh, seeing some of the work that the kind of open data groups and uh, the GC Digital uh, folks are, are looking at doing and how they're looking to kind of do some of the stuff that uh, 18F and uh, the government delivery service in the UK did. I really look forward to seeing what they, they bring to the table and how they can engage the public and, and public servants to really shake up how we go about doing a few things. So what brought you to Canada? Yeah, I had a, I was a young free and single in, in, uh, in Scotland and uh, guaranteed job offer. Uh, with the uh, appropriate permits, and why not? Did you have any preconceptions about what a life in Canada would be like, and, and uh, yeah, how was it measured up? No preconceptions. Uh, I, one of my friends actually moved here before I did, uh, so I kind of heard a little bit on the grapevine, uh, and I moved straight to, to PEI. So no real preconceived perception. Perhaps maybe there was... Um, due south on the tv as i was growing up in the uk which was a uh, you know one of the fine canadian exports uh, so of course there's the stereotypical kind of comedic angle but yeah it, it, it's worked out great you know i've been here uh, like i say uh, 10 years now so it's home i have now been a public servant for 10 years First, I want to say that there isn't an ideal work situation. Even when you're the boss in charge of the operation, you're still beholden to the opinions of others and the external drivers that impact your business. When I see the public sector directly compared to the private sector in terms of how nimble the latter is or how visibly purposeful the not-for-profit operation is, I think the comparisons are counterproductive. I think we have to recognize that we're 250,000 individuals each with their own stories and aspirations. To paint everyone with one brush with respect to their purpose or capacity to innovate or accept change or adapt is unproductive. But it brings me to what we are doing well now. We're recognizing the massive importance of mental health and healthy workplaces for people who are paid to think all day, every day. It's great that there's so much work going into destigmatization of mental health ailments, 
For some of us, the second leaf policies are far superior to anything that the private sector can offer. But I'm seeing that shift. I'm seeing it more as the conversation is happening around flexible work arrangements, perhaps telework or leave with income averaging or modified work hours, um, using people's natural talents or, if you will, productivity cycles. It's also good that we're looking now at results-based processes. There's still some work to do on that front, but the cracks in the ice have appeared. So now it's just a matter of time before things shift. We're also putting change management as a discipline on the table. Ironically, change management requires time and gradual approach to different people. And time is often the one thing that we don't have. But the fact that this is brought into various projects and we're talking about it and having workshops and building the fundamentals of it into the way we build our strategies is an excellent move. I'm also noticing that Departments started putting a better emphasis on delivering value to Canadians in a visible way. I think that's fantastic because our ability to clearly explain what we do um, and how everything fits in the bigger picture in a meaningful way from individual to individual builds a strong sense of the workforce working toward delivering project and processes and services that mean something to Canadians and perhaps an international audience. And we're getting a little bit closer to the people that we intend to serve in these ways. We're also doing better with citizen and stakeholder engagement. We're trying to, anyway, move out of the Ottawa-centric bubble and have been trying to incorporate other viewpoints into the work we do. I'm seeing more and more public sentiment analysis uh, making their way into documents and plans and strategies. I think we're beginning to operate within the communities that we're serving as partners now, and less so as an absolute authority, which again is humanizing the service to lots of Canadians. Something else that's excellent and where the size of the service works really well is the ability for people to move to different areas, work on various topics and really diverse fields, and have access to thousands of peers. Now, to an optimist, the service is a great way to experiment and learn so many different things in one career. To a pessimist, it's probably the fastest way to get lost in the size and complexity of the service. I think what we can do to improve is to begin cultivating in some places or fostering a sense of security with regards to the challenge function. Call it perhaps a systematic underuse or misuse of knowledge workers' talents. We seem to have large pockets of professions where raising your hand and asking probing questions that drive at an objective or the delivery mechanism has been discouraged over the years. Perhaps we could begin including measures in various evaluation ways to make sure that managers and senior management are encouraging the challenge function and that people do feel comfortable bringing their analytical thinking to the table all the time. Because for a majority of the cases, you're paying knowledge workers for their knowledge and for their opinions and for their take on issues and for their analysis. We've also really got to get a handle on perspective. It seems to me that sometimes we treat and think of issues like workplace well-being and standards of service as isolated issues from mantras like do more with less. And that doesn't work. At some point, we have to be clear about timelines, priorities, and how they fit in the big picture. The definition of crisis to me is clear, but I find that oftentimes we're misusing the term and the sense of the urgency, and we need to work on that balance. As far as, you know, do more with less is concerned, it's not possible or necessary sometimes to do the same thing over and over again with less people. That's the recipe for burnout. Instead, I think what we need to do is check 
and see what processes and projects and approaches are outdated, unnecessary, or frivolous. That takes sacrifice and leadership from everyone, from the DM all the way down. Don't do more with less. Do more effective things with what you have to deliver on what is actually needed. Um, redundant, outdated, and trivial are not just web cleanup terms. They're a way to look at existing processes and operations and evaluate. So maybe what we need to do collectively is do some reflecting and think about what's important, what's a priority, and how it fits, and what is the impact of lots of crises on the well-being and the workplace and the productivity and the talent management and retention of the people that we're trying to look after. And as much as we're talking about taking risks and conducting our business as transparently as possible, when possible, we're still worried about failing publicly. We're focusing on, you know, big announceables and we're a little removed from authenticity. There's so much that could be shared with the public that will bring us closer to them and make our services and deliverables so much more relatable. I would love to see more senior figures and subject matter experts talking about the small wins and the work that happens in between the big announceables. And I'd like that done by them in their own words and their point of view. Because it's a bit frustrating to know how interesting and engaging someone really is, but then read a very polished and out-of-touch communique from their office and think that doesn't sound or feel like you. Why would you rob us of the chance to know the person that we're working for? Um, when you feel connected to the person who's making decisions for you and your work, you want to do the best job you can. And you'll think twice before leaving because it's a personal thing. Our removal of the personal aspects of everyday life from work and our personalities is, you know, to our own detriment. And finally, one thing we should really, truly work on is to address the HR process. And by that, I mean, we need to take a long, hard look on how we're managing talent because we're not. The way to progress in the career is to go after management positions. The problem is not that everyone can be a manager and not everyone wants to be a manager. So how is it that with our size and diversity of skill sets and files, we have no mechanism for people to develop in their careers and progress without saddling them with looking after the careers of others? I've met in my life some brilliant individuals, experts in their field, delightful people, and they cannot or will not work well with others. In the context of the public service, that's our modern-day talent management tragedy. Want to continue doing what you love and get better at it? Here's a position that will let you do very little of what you're good at, and then make sure that you are learning a whole new set of processes to deal with people that are supposed to be doing the work that you did, and in different ways. You're basically sharpening everyone else along and having very little to do yourself other than that. And that is not necessarily where lots of people derive their sense of purpose from. It's painful to watch. People do not quit their jobs, they quit their managers. It's true, and it's not necessarily the fault of the person who's put in that position. It just seems that somewhere along the line in your career, you have no choice but to go in that route, and then you become a substandard performer. And there has got to be a way for us to make it easier for people to get into the service. In this respect, Ottawa is a bubble. It has chosen schools and programs it picks from, and the process of getting in or around is out of touch with what talent recruiters are doing on the outside, from what we look for in people to the way we set up a screening process. We have to be honest about 
the problem we have with respect to not being able to put the right person in the right place because they lack some qualifications that are not actually integral to them doing their job. And we need to examine that. We should also look at the workforce. It is not as diverse as it can be. The perspective of the people we hire and the types of education they have and their personalities. So we end up with a sterile work environment that brings in certain types of performers into the fold. And then we expect to have a reflective group working that represents society at large. And that's not the case. We have a few people we want to call outliers, but we're not really bringing in that many people to make the outlier community capable of shifting anything in any direction. Another thing I'd like to see us work on in the next few years is the ability for any level to go on an interchange with the private or not-for-profit sectors. Um, because there's so much to learn from the practices outside the service, and there's a lot to teach those on the outside about how the system works from within. It's a really good way to get perspective and stakeholder buy-in, so I don't know why we won't be using more of it. I think it would be a wasted opportunity to make sure that we are building a very nimble workforce that can have skill sets applicable in various sectors. But I do want to wrap all this up and say that from where I'm sitting, I think we're moving as well as a 250,000 plus organization that has different motivators and dreams and speeds and abilities can move in one direction. But we also need to be very honest about how the service is like a person um, who's afraid of failure and would like to control everything because that's where their sense of security comes from. Maybe we need to focus on improving our individual sense of strength and resilience and how each and everyone has the capacity to affect change and make work matter. And then the whole would be built on the strengths of these individuals. So I think the changes that will happen in the next few years are up to us on an individual level. I don't think we need to wait for massive shift or permission. I think we just do it. My name is Lina Chiriot. I work with the Skills and Employment Branch in Employment and Social Development Canada, and I'm a policy officer. So I was not born in Canada. In fact, I was born in Kenya, and I came to Canada as a student about 15 years ago, very long. And uh, I came to study. My interest at first was pharmacy, but I ended up going into psychology. And later on, I did a master's in public administration. And I came alone as a student, so my family is well back in Kenya. I'm proud to be a Canadian. I think it's a great country. It sets an example for so many other countries. Our neighbors in the U.S., I think we shine <laughs> in comparison to them. And I think um, there's a lot of opportunities here in Canada to work, to participate in activities worldwide, internationally, and I'm proud to be a Canadian. What makes Canada special? It's a country that uh, has a lot of diversity, and as being an African from Kenya, I, I don't feel less valuable to the society. I feel like I'm part of the society. I'm, I have the opportunity to celebrate my culture. It's a very multicultural country, and looking back when I came from Kenya, I, was, I had a very narrow view of the world, and when I came to Canada, I got to interact with so many people from all parts of the country, sorry, from all parts of the world, and uh, I think it exposed me a lot, and I'm, it's the one thing that I'm grateful for. 
I joined the public service because I wanted to make a difference in people's lives. I always notice a lot of social problems and I'm interested in social policy. And it was a, a very big decision when I decided to do a master's in public administration versus a master's in business administration because business administration is very corporate. It seems to be anyway uh, very profit-driven, so I wanted something to work in an environment that makes a difference in the lives of people. And that's how I joined the public service. I was interested in working in health policies, and, and I ended up in employment programs, and I'm happy to be here. As a public servant, I feel there are many ways that I can be, make a difference in this world. I feel that there are numerous opportunities within the public service, and I feel proud to be working in the Canadian Federal Public Service. I would say right at this very second, what the public service is doing well is really examining the policies and programs that would impact the lives of Indigenous people. And I'm actually proud to be working in an area that touches on Indigenous issues. I think that's an area in Canada that uh, needs a lot of work and a lot of improvement. And the time is now, and as public servants and the public service, that's an area that is of great interest. And we are making, we're going to make a difference that in 20 years, I hope I'll be looking back and saying I contributed to making the Indigenous issues uh, more positive rather than what they are at the moment. What excites me about the public service is the numerous opportunities that are here. Sometimes I think, I wonder if in five years I'll still be excited doing what I'm doing. And then at the very same time, I think, well, I will have an opportunity elsewhere. And um, there's a lot of uh, support for moving around and gaining experience in various areas. And so that excites me about the public service. What excites me about my work is actually the difference that will make in the indigenous communities and people across the country to change their story from one that has been very negative to one that is very positive and uh, so that they can be they can feel like contributing members of the society and like what has happened in the past i think what the public service needs to do better is in my i'm only very young in the public service compared to so many other people what can be done better is I think to make it more of a learning environment, and I'm not sure, um, I've only been in one department, but in terms of uh, technology, for example, there's a lot of technology out there, uh, very basic and very advanced. And I feel that um, for those who've been in the public service for a longer time, they're so scared of something that is unknown to them. And I say that with caution. <laughs> but I think we should be encouraging um, all public servants to acquire as long um, as much skills as possible and to look at the skills that are required in the future and to have that also ingrained in the work that we do such that it's not only about the day-to-day -day work we are doing but uh, more about what are the skills that will be required in the future to make the workplace more efficient such that there'll be no gap in the new generation that is coming in and looking at the older generation and feeling like these people don't know how to use this <laughs> <laughs> very basic uh, tool and uh, so anyway just to close that gap that is going to happen I think in the future so more technology skills you've been listening to Toddcast season 3 episode 7 all opinions expressed on Toddcast are strictly those of the individual and are not necessarily those of their employer 
This episode's listener letter was voiced by Toddcast team member Kathleen Rue Cavanaugh. Special thanks to Susan Danish, Allison DeToni, Abe Greenspoon, Octavia James, Catherine Jollymore, Tom Kearney, Sikander Majid, Joy Moscovich, Sonia Powell, and Darlene Marion for their support and contributions to the Toddcast community. You can support us too. Wherever you found us, iTunes, Google Play Music, Stitcher, social media, or on my website, let us know that you heard Toddcast and help us to reach a little further in getting meaningful content out to the public service of Canada. Become a subscriber, share the episodes, rate our content, and write. And let us know what's on your mind. You can reach me at Todd at ToddLines.ca or start a conversation with your fellow listeners on the Toddcast group on GC Connects or our satellite group on GC Collab. Toddcast is planned, written, and technically produced using free and open source software. Canboard, DocuWiki, and Audacity running on Kubuntu Linux and Linux Mint. Software that is free as in cost, but more importantly, free as in freedom. This episode's theme music was Breathe by Axel and Art, and the segment music was Adam, Are You Free? by PC3. Both are licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution License. Fair use rights are asserted over Peace Cells by Dave Mustaine for this episode's derivative version on the grounds that it is protected under parody. Toddcast content is free to use and share under the Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike license because, like open source... Open content and open licensing makes the world a better place. I'm Todd Lyons. I'll see you online. Blah.